You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. So you're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. This is Father Deacon Basil, and I am honored and privileged to have the uh, on our as a guest today the great Daniel Johnson from the Color of Thought Podcast. Uh, for those of you that don't uh, know, we've talked about the Color of Thought for a number of times, a number of times, and uh, talked about the importance of it as being this bridge between. Uh, psychology and Thomistic thought, and it is uh, absolutely phenomenal. So Daniel is uh, a, he's with the Divine Mercy Clinic and Family Center in, I think it's in LA, right? Duarte, but it's all the same to me. Okay, yeah, it's all the same to me too. Uh, (laughs) I don't even know where Duarte is, Uh, but he's a marriage and family therapist in the state of California, uh, and you can look him up at danielmft.com, and uh, we're just so absolutely uh, privileged to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm happy to be here, and big fan of the show, and and a a bigger fan that you're a fan of me, so (laughs) good time. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, No, uh, so what we'd like to talk about today is... uh, uh, and get your thoughts on uh, from a Thomistic perspective, um, you know, as as a, a Polemite uh, theologian myself, if you don't know what that is, it's, it's, it's totally understandable that you wouldn't know what a Polemite is. Uh, but uh, as a Polemite theo- uh, theologian and specialist in the Desert Fathers and Evagrius, sometimes I look over the... Uh, over the uh, Mediterranean at, uh, at you Thomists and go, boy, you're so clear and concise and I appreciate it so much. Um, but I disagree with many things, but at least you could say it clearly and you don't have to read, you know, um, and discern and spend four hours um, thinking about one line of, uh, of exactly what I might, I, how I meant it in a, uh, <laughs> as we do with the Desert Fathers. But one of the things we wanted to talk about was the idea of, uh, of spiritual warfare um, I, we've, we're titling this podcast, the devil made me do it. Um, and as mental health professionals with training, both in theology and spirituality in general, I think it's really a, an important topic. So I'm, I'm curious from, from just your general kind of outlook on things, how have you seen the integration of the spiritual life or the spiritual warfare rather into the clinical setting? Sure, sure. So this question of, you know, the, did the devil make me do it? Um, you know, at at its worst, it's kind of you know a a, a five year old. It's a it's a childish way of um, sidelining the blame or uh, putting the, or the cause of my action on somebody else rather than myself. And that, to me, you know, seems to be at its worst, kind of how people use that line. You know, this question of the devil made me do it. It's a way of a you know, all the way back to Adam. It's a way of avoiding blame. Right. Right. Uh, so at its worst, there's that. And, and something that struck me, and, and I'm having to dig, you know, 10, 12 years back in my memory at this point when I was in theology. Um, but I, I recall quite vividly and being shocked that one of the things St. Thomas says in the Summa is that there is no action that human beings do that can be um, that necessarily, and I think that's the key, necessarily has to be attributed to demonic influence or, or you know, the devil made me do it. So everything from the worst atrocities in history to the um, tiniest negligences of your day can be attributed to the fact that human beings are just weak and, and do 
we set up for the devil to be um, scapegoated uh, in this in this context. Yeah, that people do things on their own, even though uh, even though we could say that there is a devil, we don't need to use him as the scapegoat for everything. I remember um, when I was in seminary, um, there was. <laughs> I think this is safe to say, I think we, we were talking about this before we started recording, um, that in seminary, there's this sort of, um, what I noticed was there was this tendency to always like talk about these exorcism experiences. And, and we used, um, we won't go into too much detail perhaps, but there's this kind of like, it's like a Jedi training academy in some minds of, uh, of, uh, of spiritual seminary or seminarians or, or monastics in general, where it's like, oh, I want to go find my lightsaber and go into combat, um, uh, spiritual combat. Uh, so there were always these stories about, about, um, they're completely unverifiable. Like there's no way of actually verifying whether these stories took place in any way. But I remember one in particular where it was like, you know, there was this, this, uh, this priest and a couple of seminarians who uh, attended a talk by Hitler. I don't know why there were priests and seminarians at a talk by Hitler, but that's neither here nor there. And they, they started praying the prayers of exorcism and Hitler froze up and had to be taken off of the stage. And the entire kind of, premise behind that is that there is something that God, or th that the only way someone could have done the atrocities of Hitler was that they, he had to have been possessed by the devil himself. And the answer, I think, at least what you're saying is, from a Thomistic perspective, maybe, or he could have just done it by himself on his own. H human beings are capable of tremendous evil. I mean, if, if we, I mean, Hitler, you know, he's, he's the easy example for this. But if right. we take something like him and say, okay, there's this level at which, you know, evil has to be accompanied by demonic influence, well, then you automatically have to say that um, Stalin was possessed, uh, Mao Zedong was possessed, uh, uh, the Khmer Rouge was possessed. I mean, you, you just have to, you know, automatically say that there is a roof or a ceiling to human evil. And but Hitler, I think, is he's a seductive um, uh, personality in this kind of conversation because not only was the evil uh, so pronounced, but the the style—I guess that's the right word to use—Hitler's style is very um, demonic in this sense. Uh, the, the devil points out things that we can do and he and, and as we were talking about a little earlier and, and doubtless will flesh out here you know the devil's interaction with us is on the level of our thoughts he presents a proposition and then we draw that down to a conclusion so the the example i like to use is the one of anthony the great you know the devil points out that there's gold in the road he doesn't tell anthony you could use that gold to recover your family's fortune buy a better house than your dad had and save the village or some such thing he just says oh look there's a giant pile of gold there uh so so yeah. but he leaves it to anthony to to either work that out to what that means or to what that can be used for and and hitler i mean he certainly had a rhetorical style I mean, you don't even have to understand German, and maybe it's better not to when you listen right. to it. But, right. um, you know, you know this guy has a presence and a force, and he, he moves people through speech, through rhetoric. Um, in a way, I, must, I, I assume that Stalin never did. Um, I've never watched videos of Mao Zedong, but, I mean, I imagine he didn't have the same rhetorical style. So there is kind of a that demonic element in, in the popular understanding of Hitler in that 
he communicates and tempts and moves people through speech, through thought, the way, mm-hmm. the way Satan does. Yeah, and I think the, the point is, um, is well taken that I, I, I've told people this before and, and, and gotten a lot of pushback from it, but it's I would rather be completely possessed and out of control of my own ability because then there's no culpability to me then to be doing the acts of the demons, uh, which is way worse, you know, and what the demons do is, is, is they sin. That's kind of like the definition of it. And I would rather be, I would rather be possessed than do what I do on a regular basis right now, because I'm consciously choosing to turn my back on God. And the problem is, is that we've built up this pyramid I've even seen certain deliverance and exorcists talk about this. There's this pyramid of demonic activity. And I'm sitting at the top going, well, the people who are possessed are not nearly in control of their, of their faculties in any way. And the people at the bottom, me, um, are, and I'm still choosing to turn away from God. And it's that idea of that intentionality that is so important. And it's, it's so rarely talked about um, that, that you can do even great spiritually, exteriorly, seemingly great spiritual things for the wrong reasons and actually be in a deeper spiritual, uh, a worse spiritual state than if you hadn't done any spiritual uh, anything. Um, and it's, 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 it's a much more mature way of viewing the spiritual life than just simply saying, well, the devil made me do it and I'm, I'm, I'm stuck. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. This if you kind of take a, a step back from the, the the possessed, from the victim in this situation, the role of exorcism kind of in, in the Christian community, so to speak, mm-hmm. really is to be um, taken as an example of, uh, you know, not that, you know, the devil is so bad, but that anyone who sins is just as bad, if not worse. And so in a, in a kind of visceral way, the possession experienced by the Christian community or, or seen or witnessed by the Christian community serves as um, uh, a kind of uh, lesson that uh, of the evil of sin, of personal sin in one's day-to-day life or of personal negligences in one's day-to-day life. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the possessed do not have culpability of their actions. And so, you know, in a way, as dramatic as it is, you know, and, and you know, the movies serve that role, I think, to some extent. You know, they, they show you the drama. Um, they certainly do a terrible job of presenting the priests, but, you know, uh, but they, they probably do an okay job of eliciting that visceral reaction you're supposed to have, even at the notion of possession. But, I mean, that really is kind of the terror of possession is that your will is is circumscribed. You no longer have control of your actions. That's the real terror of possession. And yet, when we have our faculty, our will, our we use it for terrible ends. We use it as you. Uh, the phrase you used was lovely. We use it in the activity of the demon. We use it in the actions of at the service of the devil, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's yeah. That's definitely part of the terror of possession is. Um, my will is not there anymore, but yet when I have my will, what do I do with it? You know, how do I, and, and that really is the meditation. I think anyone should take away from those books, you know, the Gabriel Amorth books or, or, um, any of those more popular presentations really is what am I doing in my life so that I don't cooperate 
right. with the devil. Right, right. And I, I think perhaps to kind of segue this, because I think it's really important, at least in the Eastern mindset, in the mind of the, of the Desert Fathers, um, which I, I think it's important and I think it's fair to say that the founder of the entire concept of looking at the demons as being influential, influential in the spiritual life, the sort of foundation of the entire discipline of what we might call demonology is uh, Evagrius of Pontus, um, who is, is my, my personal interest, um, actually for this very reason, um, because of his kind of understanding of the spiritual life. And what's particularly interesting is he doesn't go through and um, he doesn't talk about the demons as far as, you know, they, well, well, you know, one threw me across the floor or something or whatever else might be kind of presented in, in, in the movies or perhaps even in some books. Um, what is particularly interesting is that his concept of the demons are what he called the eight evil thoughts. Um, and eventually St. Gregory the Great um, would take these eight evil thoughts, turn them into the seven deadly sins, which is, I think is a mistake. I mean, I mean, God, I, I dearly love uh, the Holy uh, the Holy Father of uh, St. Uh, Gregory the Great. But what I think happened with that transition is it changed the sort of notion of the spiritual life from being something that is uh, the thought that I then give into the sin to just focused in on just the sin. So a lot of times when I see this in spiritual direction or pastoral care or, or in, um, in even clinical settings, that, that there's a radical concern about the actual action which under, is understandable, but at least from the notion is that it's the thought that preceded the action that is really of importance because then I can work on the thoughts and the thoughts are the temptations of the demons. Well, and, and this of course is very much the history of contemporary psychology is that th this movement away from behavioral um, obsession with external activity and external cues and conditioning into the concern of um, the thoughts and the emotions that accompany thoughts or behaviors as um, in some way causative of those behaviors. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You're pointing to the fact that the Desert Fathers of Agrius of Pontus especially um, was able to see these the the role of the thoughts in in human behavior much more clear clearly than contemporary man and we of course I mean we could lay that at the foot of Descartes we could lay that at the foot of E.F. Skinner we we could play we could do that game all day long I think the real value of that meditation though is for us to take pause and and say okay. And, and really begin to evaluate our own thoughts throughout the day and evaluate what, um, uh, dare I say, conversation we've, we've held with the demon throughout the day. And that really is the, the point here. And I think examination of conscience serves a particularly powerful role in this regard to give us pause and, and a moment to go, okay, what did I think? What did I do today? And it's, I mean, our Lord himself points to the importance of the role of thought when he's, um, uh, you know, he, he who has, you know, lusted in his heart has, has, I'm getting the, I'm mangling the, the quote here, but, right, you know, but he who has lusted in his heart has, has committed the sin of adultery already. Right. Um, you know, it, it's, it very much is the intention and, and uh, the, the thoughts and then the will that, you know, irrespective of external behavior, which becomes really important. 
And, and so, yeah, I mean, drawing it back into the, the meditation on the devil made me do it. Yeah, the devil can point stuff out to you and, and highlight certain things in your experience. Um, this is probably very true, I think, um, for, for obsessive compulsive or trauma victims as well. I mean, the devil, I think, does a really good job um, uh, drawing them back into a particular memory or drawing them back into a particular, or he can potentially be part of that, that experience there. Um, and I think OCD folks um, benefit from some sort of meditation on, you know, reevaluation of our own thoughts at the very least, if not some kind of deliverance ministry or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, that's just a passing thought and I would have to formulate that a little more coherently. Um, no, I, I, I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, when you look at the kind of prime example of Christ facing in a personal sense, the devil, it's of course his, his uh, 40 days in the desert. And the, the scriptures are really quite interesting because I think it's fair to say that for Evagrius, um, he viewed these, this experience not so much as a physical presence of the devil sitting there tempting Christ, but it was the thought that entered his head that he could, and, 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 the, and the gospel writer put voice to that thought of, I'm hungry, that I could change these, these uh, stones into bread. Mm -hmm. um, or look at all of the all of the kingdoms of the world, if I just gave, bowed down to the devil, in other words, gave into my, you know, gave into the attempt of, of, you know, personal, personal, um, personal uh, drive and ambition. If I gave into this, then I, then I could have all of the kingdoms of the world. And I think, you know, the entire concept of that is if that were a thought process, if we were to view that as a thought process, then we can see, Actions like, uh, like what Evagrius would say is to talk back to, the de uh, to these thoughts, to talk back to the demons, um, and not in personal discourse, but through the scriptures, that gives a real process of, of doing something to the thoughts. And this is what his entire uh, pr principle called the Antoreticus, um, his entire talking back manual, which was developed back then, which is just scripture passages. So when you have the thought, my favorite example is when the thought comes to uh, that I should abandon the trade that I have now um, and find one that was less uh, arduous. You should talk back with, by the sweat of your brow, you shall uh, bring forth bread. Uh, just, you know, when that thought comes to mind. So when you keep thinking, I need a second career, right? I need yeah. to go become a used salesman or whatever else it might be. Well, at least spend some time talking back to that with the idea that I need to be content for now. And this entire concept is that's not, that's, that is a spiritual practice that is done to talk back to the demons right here and now without calling a dis deliverance prayer priest or, or, a, or, a, or an exorcist yet. Right. And, and I think, I mean, we've both begun to draw this down into to practical resolutions. I think the examination of conscience is important, mm -hmm. but um, Lexio Divina, I think, is paramount in um, not, yes, in fighting the devil, but more importantly, I think, and, and really to, to kind of begin to strike back at the heart of the spiritual life, really in conforming our mind to the divine mind. And he, I mean, the, the creator himself has given us oh, however many uh, thousands of pages of text to use by which our intellect can be informed and, and conformed to the creator's mind, to the, to the logos um, 
what's the phrase through whom and by whom the universe was created. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, that to me is, is intensely important. And, you know, someone like Evagrius who can, you know, identify a situation or a behavior and, and give us the immediate passage to use by which to, to begin to inform our thoughts so that my behavior follows. And that that's invaluable resource and, and absolutely something, um, so I, I really think people who are having this struggle of, you know, is the devil involved or, or they're inter I guess back to our seminarian friends. Um, you know, if, if you're interested in this sort of thing, <clears throat> what comes first is the spiritual life and, and your own mind's conformity to the divine mind. And that, and that can be achieved in no better way than through the reading of sacred scripture, the prayerful, meditation of sacred scripture and it's it's i mean just to go back to um our lord's 40 days in the desert he himself and i'm sure vagris points this out he himself responds to the devil using quotes he doesn't just even though he could have generate his own you know discourse with right. with Satan. i mean he, he could that would be fascinating actually if he had done yeah. that but um you know being a good teacher he draws on scripture and and you know um, shows us how to go about this. And it's interesting, I mean, it, this notion of, to, to switch gears here a little bit, this notion of the demon being something we have discourse with and it being, you know, part of the intellect. Um, one of the, the ways that this becomes kind of popularized in the West is this notion of the noonday devil. The, the, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but as I understood it, the idea is that you know, you've done your good works in the first part of the day, and then the noonday devil comes to unravel them for you. And and I think that's usually through suggestions of sloth or or kind of a bitterness towards your neighbor, kind of envy towards your neighbor. And that's always been that that seems to be a popular notion that somehow has survived into into Western spirituality. And and every now and then a client will bring that up to me, and I'm 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 at a loss as to how to respond to that. You know. Yeah. Prayer and sacrifice, well, I guess. Well, um, so this is actually the entire, uh, this, this concept from an Evagrian perspective was actually uh, my both personal and experiential uh, foyer into uh, the Desert Fathers was, um, was this concept of the noonday demon, um, also known as Acadia okay. or listlessness. Um, and then this is actually what my master's thesis was entirely on, um, was this application. And what's interesting from an Evagrian perspective is that uh, it, it, he would say that it's slightly different than just simply sloth. And I think this is exactly what you were kind of getting at there um, in, intuitively is that it's the emotional exhaustion that comes. Um, and eventually uh, it, it means that I'm just, I'm just emotionally exhausted and I'm just going to kind of give in to being, being distracted or not focused or, or kind of this sort of seething hatred. He says that it's the seething hatred for, for manual labor or for one's superior. Um, maybe I said a little too much about my experience of life. What I said, it was a personal, no comment, my personal but yeah. foyer, but, uh, but you know, um, I seem to know this demon <laughs> personally. Um, yes, we chat almost on a weekly basis, but um, I'm sure I've bid him sometimes right. <laughs> to other people, um, but, but the entire concept of it. Um, so, so what's interesting is that this one, um, 
what, what, what's, what's problematic about it when you talk about it just from a sloth perspective is that it takes away the exhaustion, the emotional exhaustion kind of uh, piece to it. Um, and so what was the noonday demon? Well, it was monks, monastics, um, anchorites would be sitting in their, in their little, um, they, they looked like kind of beehives, you know, um, out in the middle of the desert. Uh, well, the desert of Egypt at noon at the height of the sun, you're just sitting in these little things, just baking, you know, and it's just, 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 I just, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. I've spent the whole day up until this point. Um, and they woke up very early, of course, you know, so this was the grand majority of the day they had already been up. Um, and they were just, you know, just stuck trying to get through the day. And, um, and all of a sudden it's the, just, I just, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and that, that is the exhaustion component to it. Now that, at least for me, is a very relatable experience, as I've already said. Um, and it's not, it's not that I need to um, go and wear uh, medals, miraculous medals. There's nothing wrong with miraculous medals, and there's great things about it. But the, th- the thing is, is that that's not a charm that's going to keep the devil of that, emo- you know, the demon of that emotional exhaustion away from me. It's faith that I have in what that represents, which is a relationship with God that is of, of value, not the actual physical object for the moment, you know? And, you know, I, there's been all sorts of kind of conversations about this that, you know, that, 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 you know, the devil can't do things in the presence of, you know, for example, the Eucharist. It's like, I, I could speak as a deacon, you can have all sorts of thoughts right in the presence of the Eucharist. You can have thoughts while being a deacon in the liturgy. And that is of, of radical importance to say that, you know, this is a much more complicated thing than just simply a, a, a sort of form of, of, uh, of superstition that can take place. And I know that, you know, a lot of exorcists are, are very much aware of this and actually trying to battle it themselves. So I'm not trying to say that there's, you know, that this is anything aside from a poorly catechized understanding of, of these things within the church. And I think it comes from things like Hollywood. All right. I'll let you talk now after I've been. No, no. I, and I, I think, I mean, you, be, you begin to unravel there. Um, I, I think part of the difficulty people have and why they have recourse in a superstitious fashion to, to these things mm-hmm. is that they think that um, the goal of any sort of deliverance or any sort of, of sacramental um, is to, uh, banish the devil or to push him away or for him to be gone. And, and really with something like the noonday devil, it sounds like the, the struggle or the, the goal is to endure the, the moment, the temptation, the thoughts, the, the pattern of thought. It's really to uh, what there, there's no solution, but through uh, it's, right. it's, you know, yeah, you know, reciting your, your prayer or whatever, but, he ain't going anywhere. It's hot and you got six hours of this, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense to me that, you know, there are these, you know, certain temptations, if you will, for which um, the solution is to endure, not to um, be upset or be um, angry with yourself that you can't get rid of these things or they they won't go away or to be upset with God that they won't go away Uh, because they, they really are the, the, the test for you and the proof and the refinement of your dedication and your love in a, in a right. real way. Well, and, and it's funny that you say, say that, um, 
you know, for, for the, in the Evagrian model, there is always a remedy for each of the maladies. Um, and there's a cognitive, which is the talking back process. Um, but there's also a behavioral remedy for each of them. And for listlessness, the behavioral remedy, um, is, uh, is perseverance, um, which is, is exactly what you're saying. Now, for the record, out of all of the behavioral uh, uh, remedies, I find that one the least helpful in the moment. Um, just being like, ah, just, you know, hunker down and just get through it. And I, I in all honesty, even through writing an entire, um, an entire thesis on it, um, I never found it, I, I didn't find it particularly helpful until I realized very recently, actually, well, perseverance gives you something to do. And that's, that's actually something, you know, if you just say, I just need to rededicate myself and persevere, at least you have something at that point. And I think that's a, a, a pretty keen insight. And I think that one of the importance about all of this is that the spiritual life, it gives us something to do to battle the demons um, that are very every day. You know, Christ said, this demon can only be expelled through prayer and fasting. Well, I don't know what you're thinking is, but if demons can only be expelled by prayer and fasting, maybe my go-to should be prayer and fasting first. Be prayer um, and fasting. And right. I think that that's, you know, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving as the kind of foundational three councils of the church, um, whether it be Lent or Advent or Philip's fast or any other, uh, other fast or any other day, that it's a time of, of just kind of doing it consistently. And we don't have to go and and, and, and phone the exorcist necessarily just because uh, we're struggling with these things. We have to kind of look at those, those developments in general. The other thing that really kind of comes to mind, and I'm curious your reflection on this, as I'm sure you know, the final canon of the Council of Trullo, um, of course you know that, right? Uh, right, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but what it says is, is essentially, this is going to be a paraphrase of it, but essentially what it says is, for a spiritual issue, send the priest, with the right spiritual remedy, but send the doctor for the right physical remedy. And I think what's particularly interesting about that, and I think we can extrapolate this a little bit, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, but if it's a spiritual issue, we certainly should phone the priest um, or we should phone someone, but there's this fine line between a spiritual and a psychological issue. And can, can we say, uh, one of the things, well, what I like to say, and so can, am I right in saying that the devil can be expelled, the demons can be expelled if they are there through the use of a EMDR light bar or cognitive therapy in the same sense that they can be expelled through a deliverance prayer or any other kind of work, just like they can be expelled through the use of psychotropic medications if necessary. Is that, am I right in saying that or have I been telling people things wrong? No, I, I well, there's a lot of, assumptions that people make about uh, the, the one-to-one causation of their problem. So there's a single cause and a single effect. And if there's anything true about human beings, it's that there are usually multiple causes and multiple effects of each of those causes. And we, we see this, I mean, just all we have to do is go look at, you know, someone's comments on a Twitter thread, you know, there, there are, you know, a thousand responses and different emotional and, and intellectual responses to the, to the one thing, to the one statement that was posted. Um, I recently heard a, heard a, a podcast where the podcaster joked, you know, if you get 
um, four, four Jews in a room together, you'll have five opinions on every matter, you know? Um, and, I thought those so, were Thomists. Uh, yeah, five sure, Thomists that's absolutely true for Thomists, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing. This, this, what is going to be the right solution? And, uh, you, you refer to a fine line and I really think that, you know, the more I think about um, the the relationship of the roles of priests and doctors and and psychologists and therapists, um, it seems to me there is a tremendous overlap mm-hmm. of of problems that can be addressed in a variety of different ways. And it well, it seems to me, especially the cognitive behavioral therapist, uh, you know, a good one who isn't just going through the worksheet, but who, who knows what they're looking for is the distinction between thoughts and emotions and behaviors and helping people strike that balance. Um, that clinician especially is going to have a tremendous amount of overlap. As, as I think our conversation today uh, illustrates, you know, if the cognitive behavioral therapist is answering or talking back to thoughts with scripture, he might, he, he, in some real uh, cleric or, or a spiritual director probably is the right phrase to use but he, he very I, well I'm so sorry be. you just broke out during that could you just do this whole thing because this is really important could you just repeat it oh no, sure I mean a good cognitive behavioral therapist especially when they're using scripture is going to be someone who you know, for all intents and purposes might as well as be your confessor or spiritual director now there are differences there and they're not the same thing and mm-hmm. and you know we could go into all that and we have gone into all that on, a, on episodes on my show. I'm, I'm sure on your be show. linked in the, 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 the link is in the description to those. Yeah, we, we yeah. can, you know, don't take what I'm saying in a much broader context than just this conversation. But the point is that there is a tremendous amount of overlap and yes, medication comes into that. The EMDR light, I mean, my goodness, the more I read about that and the more I read about the, the kind of neuroplastic work they do at, at places like the Drake Center or other places, um, that's tremendously useful stuff. Now, yes, will the thoughts have to be addressed at some point? Yes. Uh, will um, those thoughts have to be conformed to the mind of the creator at some point? I mean, yeah, absolutely. But is that the only or is that... Um, the exclusive solution to every problem. It seems to me very rarely is that the only solution. Mm. You know, I think there are multiple solutions to, to any, any one psychological problem. I think there's at least two or three different ways of addressing it. And that's, you know, that, that's part of the great um, frustration people have with the science of psychology is that, you know, it's not physics, you know, there's not this, this one-to-one relationship between things um, and even though some psychologists really try to, to um, what is it, use electronic circuitry to talk about um, how human beings relate to each other, that's still just an analogy. You know, no matter how hard you try, that's not a literal interpretation of how human beings work. It's at best just an analogy, no matter how hard you try to push it. Um, so, yeah, I, I people need to... So to our viewers, I think, and to those trying to solve particular problems, approach both. I think you, oftentimes approaching both a therapist and a, a, a pastor 
a well-trained pastor who can uh, address certain problems and, and know his limitations. Um, and that's true of the therapist as well. They just know their limitations. Um, yes. You know, the too many therapists try to take up spiritual matters when all they know is some half-baked California Buddhism. And that's, that's just insufficient for addressing spiritual problems. Real Buddhism can help a little better, but you know, California right. Buddhism doesn't help anyone. Um, but you know, that's a bad. Well, it helps people get rich. Let's just put it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it markets very well. Yeah. <laughs> if if but, we could do anything in California, we could market spirituality. <laughs> so, But I think the, the, the real kind of key takeaway, at least for me, is that, well, in addition to this, is you really need a, uh, we need as a, as a church a better clarity as to what the lines are between spiritual direction, pastoral counseling, pastoral care in general, and clinical mental health treatment. And there, there are people who have some thinking on this. I, I certainly have some thinking on this. But the problem is that you, when you start having, not every pastor should be a spiritual director. In fact, very right. few should be. Very few parochial vicars uh, should be pastors. Um, very few parochial vicars and even some pastors should be doing marriage counseling in any way, shape, or form uh, from a pastoral perspective. That, that if you have the kind of training, then that's great. But that training, I can say this, that training uh, from personal experience, that training is not sufficient in almost any seminary uh, setting. Right. And because it's just, it's just not. Um, and the importance there is, and, and then on the flip side, I had a, I had a spirituality of a, 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 a counseling spirituality class, a spirituality and counseling class. I don't even remember. It was my first grad school class. It was, it was fine for what it was, but it was not a training on how to do spiritual direction and it was not a theological training and it was, you know, we're going to talk about spirituality in such a broad sense because they were trying to train people for broad, broad, basically comfort to be able to talk with a client about their spirituality as opposed to try and direct anyone in spirituality. And I get really concerned when we have therapists trying to function as spiritual directors or even charging for spiritual direction um, and, or we have, priests trying to do spiritual direction or charge for spiritual direction, which is a whole other thing, or we have um, priests who are trying to provide therapy uh, because we've got to be very careful with this. The best case scenario, maybe instead of me just ranting about this right now, maybe the, I could say the best case scenario for any kind of spiritual issue where there might be some kind of demonic influence is an integrated model between a therapist, a priest, a medical doctor, and all the other kinds of things that might be uh, taking place, that that's really the best, the best model. And parado- uh, coincidentally, that's exactly the model of even at the height of the exorcism, uh, of a height of a major exorcism. The Roman church demands that there be a yes. psychologist there that has done a full evaluation beforehand to rule out any kind of psychological um, present, any psychological issue first. So the integrated model is there very much. And if the clergy and the therapist and everybody else has done their appropriate work, there is always going to be an integrated model first and foremost. No, it would be fascinating to, because that model does exist in one context, it would be fascinating to see how we could draw that out to uh, more everyday, you know, the, the relationship between obsessive compulsive disorder and, and spirituality or, or, um, or the relationship between um you know, uh, dryness in prayer and depression perhaps, or, yeah. or, you know, anxiety, or, or I'm just connecting random dots at this point. But yeah, it would be interesting to see how to draw that out so that, 
Because the answer has been up to this point, um, you know, people like me who are therapists and then go and study a whole lot of spirituality, priests who go and study a whole lot of psychology. So it's been, it's been done in individuals. It hasn't been done in an institutional setting or in a, or in a team or group approach to this issue the way, well, it's a, it's a resource that a decently funded parish could provide. Um, could provide a team like that who who works with with uh, the parishioners. So yeah, it would be it'd be interesting to draw that out a little more. So yeah, I one hundred percent agree. Um, we could talk for another hour and a half, but uh, I just saw the uh, the time, and it's probably best to kind of wrap up. But if if I could put a little bow on this entire conversation. Um, Yes, there is demonic, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, there is demonic activity. Thomas, Evagrius, and, uh, and everybody in between has seen that as uh, being present. They've disagreed about kind of maybe the specifics of that, but that there is obviously things that do have this. But it's not necessary to say that everything that we're experiencing is some kind of demonic activity, or if it is from an Evagrian model, that doesn't really change anything. That just means we have to continue on um, moving forward. And it can be very dangerous to start to view the devil as the, the, the creature that is uh, constantly causing me to do all of these things, as opposed to the fact that, yeah, I just kind of like my own personal vices and, and, and logismoi, um, as, as the East would say, and that it's in the realm of the thoughts and what the thoughts come from, whether they be motivation from a Thomistic perspective or any of the others or Aristotelian approaches, that it's at that level that we really have to, to kind of work on those things. But it's primarily prayer, fasting, and almsgiving with additional treatments um, like cognitive therapy or EMDR light bars or perhaps even deliverance prayer. But it's primarily prayer, fasting, and almsgiving that are the treatment and remedy for all of this. Is that a fair assessment of where we're at? That's exactly right. No, I, I, think, I think the focus for people needs to be uh, those elements of the spiritual life, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And from that, yes, you'll chase away the demon or you'll, you'll uh, form your own ability to persevere through his attacks. But that's the goal is to, you know, conform yourself to the mind of Christ. And the whole demon thing is, is incidental. It's, it's, you know, it's an attractive part of the spirituality of a Christian, but we're not here just to chase demons. We're here to, you know, live with God in, yeah. in eternity and to, to know him as best we can, to know and love him as best we can. Absolutely. Well, this is spot on. Daniel, thank you so much. Again, that's Daniel with the Color of Thought podcast. The link is down in the, in the description, danielmft.com. And he is with the Divine Mercy Clinic uh, and Family Center in LA uh, for those who might be uh, for our LA listeners. So thank you so much, Daniel. And we will see you next time on the Catholic Psyche Podcast. Thank you.